This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. He is arguably one of the hardest working mayors Torontonians have ever elected. John Tory has been on the job almost every day since the pandemic began back in March. Mayor Tory has praised his fellow residents when we've worked together to reduce the spread of COVID-19, and he's also scolded when necessary. John Tory has always been opposed to the idea of reopening the city's bars over concerns that people out drinking late at night are less likely to follow the health guidelines. Premier Ford has said that the mayor is welcome to close the bars if he thinks it will reduce the spread of the virus. Libby Snymer asked him about this when he joined Fight Back on Thursday. The Medical Officer of Health and I have talked about this, uh, the Toronto Medical Officer of Health, for some time. And in fact, this is not something that I recently suggested. I actually wrote uh, to the Premier as part of a number of suggestions we made when we entered into Phase 3, which included, for example, something they did adopt, which is that people have to sit in their chairs in restaurants and bars and can't sort of wander around with a drink in their hand because this is just bringing them into close contact with others and, and, uh, you know, can help with the spread of the virus. But at the time, we suggested uh, stopping serving alcohol at midnight. Um, They chose not to accept that uh, as something they would do. and I know the interesting reason it came up again is because they recently uh, actually did it in British Columbia, where I think they stopped serving alcohol there at 10 o'clock. And I don't think any of these things taken you know, on their own represent, you know, the magic solution to the spread of the COVID virus. But I think in combination, the face coverings and the, you know, restrictions on physical distancing and the requirements to sit, you know, a certain distance apart in restaurants. And I would say maybe the closing down of, of bars a bit earlier would, uh, would all make a contribution to that of some degree or another. The fact is we don't really know exactly, um, you know, sort of why people are getting this virus. We're, we're working hard to analyze the cases that we're tracing now. So it's not I, I never presented it as uh, either something that I have been revisiting or as something that would be a magic answer, but it was just something that I mentioned the other day that we'd uh, put forward in, in the past. And I will say there is an honest disagreement between lawyers about who has the power to do what. And the Premier and I spoke about that yesterday, and we're going to try and sort of get the lawyers to resolve who has the authority to do what. And then it means if we want to do something, at least we'll know who has the uh, legal power. We don't believe we do, even though he uh, suggested otherwise. Yeah, we just heard him say, hey, Section 22, I think. Go ahead. You know, you go. Well, I mean, I've read Section 22. I'm a lawyer. I've also had more more important than that. I've had our expert lawyers uh, at the city solicitor's department read it, and they have a different interpretation as to what it allows us to do. And I would pose the question. And again, I don't want to get into a debate because the premier and I agree we try and work this out because we've been working so well together on on this whole COVID thing. But, you know, why would I have written and asked him to do it if I thought I could do it myself, you know, back in July or whenever I wrote to him? Do you think that by shutting down drinking Earlier, you would put a crimp in that because, uh, you know, the likelihood is when it starts to get colder, they're going to be have problems again. 
when I wrote uh, to the Premier about this back in July, that was precisely the feedback I got from the restaurant and bar industry. And heavens above, uh, I'm going to be making some comments tomorrow about the need for the governments to step forward and do a lot more for that sector because they're struggling badly. But I think, you know, in the midst of all this, uh, we've been having to place health first in a difficult kind of balancing act as between the public health requirements and how much good it will do and the economic consequences of that. And and so I don't think we can we, we can not talk about these options. I think we have to talk about them. And I think we have to answer the very question you asked me, which is, okay, if you did something like this, how much benefit would it have on the health side and how much damage would it do on the economic side? And obviously, if it did no benefit on the health side and caused a lot of economic damage, uh, then you wouldn't do it. But uh, I just think that these things are all things we have to consider. Uh, and when you see a province like British Columbia doing it, um, you have to sort of conclude that they did it for a reason. They just didn't do it because they wanted to hurt bars and restaurants. And you also see some of the examples, like the most recent one I saw was a um, uh, karaoke bar in Montreal that had like 25 cases come out of there of COVID-19. But in the end, you know what? The real determinant of how this virus spreads or doesn't spread is going to come from changes to human behavior. And people have been terrific about that, uh, you know, whether it's wearing face coverings or keeping their distance. But, you know, really the advice I've been giving, and so is the Premier and others, which is to stay away from crowd scenes generally, wherever it is, at a wedding, at a bar, at a, uh, you know, any place, uh, that's going to be the best thing that people can do and wear face coverings and wash your hands, all the pretty basic advice that's been happening since the beginning. Toronto Mayor John Tory in conversation with Libby Snymer on Thursday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We Charity was back in the news this past week as the co-founding Kielberger Brothers announced they're shutting down Canadian operations because, in their words, the charity has been spending more than it's been bringing in. The We Charity has been the focus of a controversy on Parliament Hill after the organization was tapped by the Trudeau Liberals to run a now-canceled student summer grant program. The controversy is linked directly to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his former finance minister Bill Morneau, both of whom have family members associated with We Charity. Trudeau and Morneau have apologized for not recusing themselves from the decision to use WE to administer the summer volunteer program. Both are being investigated by the Federal Ethics Commissioner for possible conflict of interest. In a separate development, the Commissioner of Canada Elections announced on Thursday that Bill Morneau violated a part of the Canada Elections Act last summer when he promoted prospective Liberal candidates during his capacity as minister. On Thursday, Libby gathered a panel to talk about the latest We Charity news. She was joined by Kate Bain, Managing Director of Charity Intelligence Toronto, lawyer Mark Bloomberg, who specializes in nonprofit and charity law, along with Charlie Angus, the federal NDP ethics critic. I'm not surprised that the Kielbergers made this move uh, when they came to committee. And so the whole issue and the scandal really began to look like they were calling in their political chits. The issue doesn't go away, though, because how is it that a group that was so closely tied to the Liberal government and the Trudeau family got to the front of the line, got the inside track on this deal that went so badly, uh, it fell apart the second the media began asking questions. They put themselves in the political picture here that they weren't in before, so there's a lot of scrutiny and deserved questions that need to be asked. 
Yeah, let's bring in Mark Bloomberg. Lots of questions. One of the key questions, what's the relationship of the for-profit arm and the not-for-profit arm? And they're going to be selling those real estate assets. Is is there any way that the for-profit can get their hands on some of that? I mean, it's it's apparently worth $45 bucks. Right. Well, if uh, there's $45 million in real estate that is in a registered charity, then the normal rules that apply to a charity as to how those funds need to be spent uh, should apply. Um, the problem with this is that the for-profits, of which there are a number of them, um, we have very little visibility, there's very little transparency, so we have no idea what real estate they may have, um, how valuable their assets are, and because of the very close relationship between the charity and the for-profit, and often it wasn't clear where one began and one ended, um, there will be obviously lots of uh, questions about that. Um, but uh, basically, uh, right now, it was um, probably inevitable that they would have to make some announcement. But right now, I would just say that um, we know very little, except that obviously they're trying to uh, distract from the sort of narrative that's been going on for the last two months. And, uh, you know, because after all, if they're shutting down, then, you know, maybe we don't need to look at this anymore. But in reality, um, we have no idea. And you're going to have potentially um, a couple of people uh, controlling a part of 20 or 30 million dollars that'll be in cash, which is even um, easier to misuse in a way than if it was real estate where it's a little bit harder to uh, to deal with. So I think, in fact, the number of questions is going to uh, increase or continue as to what exactly is going on with the organization and what has been done in the past. Kate Bain, the way that board uh, charity governance is supposed to go, the, the chairman of the board is supposed to be in charge. And there's this very well-known thing, uh, founder syndrome. It's not the founders that are supposed to be in charge. Yeah, and, and to charity intelligence, that was the, the sort of ultimate when we came out with our donor advisory. Who is the management here? Where does the buck stop? Because you're exactly right, Libby. It's got to be the board of directors. That is where fiduciary responsibilities stand. These guys were flying under the radar. They go by the title of co-founder. So they're not staff. They're not directors. And from an auditor's point of view, any transactions when you're looking at the audited financial statements, any transactions when you're looking at all of these multiple entities, if money is paid to Craig or Mark or any of their family, it doesn't need to be reported because they, the auditors don't have a box to tick for co-founders. They must report any transactions involving uh, key officers and staff and directors. But as a co-founder, that's a loophole that we thought was uh, critical and needs to be closed. Craig and Mark serve on the board of other charities and other corporations. But here for the charity that they had founded and was their baby for 25 years, they were not directors. And that was a red flag to us. Libby's conversation on Thursday about We Charity shutting down operations in Canada. She was joined by Kate Bain, Managing Director of Charity Intelligence Toronto, lawyer Mark Bloomberg, who specializes in nonprofit and charity law, 
along with Charlie Angus, the federal NDP ethics critic. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. We now know how negatively the COVID-19 pandemic has affected women in the workforce. An Ontario Chamber of Commerce report released on Wednesday reveals women's labour participation rate has fallen to its lowest level in 30 years, a so-called she-session. But the report's authors also provide some hope with a plan to recovery, or she-covery, as they say. While filling in for Libby's Nimer, I was joined by Aleem Kanji, political strategist affiliated with SaveSmallBusiness.ca, along with one of the collaborators on the report, Dr. Wendy Sukier, founder of Ryerson University's Diversity Institute. As we've seen, women were twice as likely to lose their jobs, half as likely to regain them. Um, and I'm sure you know from your own circles of friends, and I certainly see it with my employees, women who had children at home were typically uh, left with childcare responsibilities without any access to, because of social distancing, to babysitters, to childcare. Um, and, uh, that combination has really set women back, women back decades. Coupled with that, even with the, with the recovery, we know that the sectors that are, are putting on jobs quickly, for example, um, information communications technology, those are areas where women tend to be underrepresented. So it is um, almost a perfect storm. Aleem, uh, tell us about this trend, how it's affected mm-hmm. small business owners. I'm, I'm certain you've heard many stories of people just barely hanging on, and of those, there would be many women entrepreneurs as well. Women's participation I believe in the labor market is is going to be a precondition to a, a full economic uh, recovery in this province, uh, in this country, and quite frankly across the world. Because these trends are not just unique to Ontario, uh, but they are unique uh, to the rest of the world. You know, we can look at at unemployment rates, um, and you know, obviously we've seen an, an increase um, amongst uh, uh, women and men uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, if we look at August, um, you know, we were we were just north of uh, 15%. If you want to combine uh, the gender uh, the genders together, um, if you want to segment that out, um, it, it, men represent approximately uh, 9% uh, unemployment and uh, 9.1, and women are 9.7. But here's the interesting thing. When you look at at uh, uh, those that are racialized or non-white uh, uh, Canadians, the number jumps. Uh, we're looking at approximately 13 percent uh, for for men, um, and just under 20 percent. We're sitting at about 17 and a half percent for racialized females, and so and so. This is huge. This is huge, not just for. Uh, for for small businesses, but but for all businesses. Dr. Sukiya, let's talk about the recommendations in your report. How realistically can women become better supported in the workplace? If you look at the recommendations, you know many of these things have been have been previously uh, discussed. The idea of using procurement to help support 
support uh, certain um, segments of the small business community, the idea of ensuring that women are at the table and, and have opportunities and leadership roles, the, the notion that we have to um, create more opportunities in, in highly paid um, occupational classes like uh, technology and engineering and even skilled skilled trades, the notion that we really have to think about um, childcare not as an expense but as an investment. Mm-hmm. Um, many of these, these points have been made before, but for me what is really interesting and significant is you have the CEO of one of the largest business associations in the country saying we have to think about these things. I, I honestly think that's going to make a massive difference. Aleem, how do you bring the implementation of these recommendations to fruition for uh, small business owners who are women? We were first promised a national child care program back in 1993. Um, the kids from that era are now uh, in in the workforce uh, mm-hmm. right now. We still haven't seen anything. But we've got a, we've got a on a national scale, we've got to look at how we can measure uh, the impact of some of these uh, solutions, be that flexible work arrangements for those in, in small and large businesses. Uh, how, do we, how do we ensure that, that there are uh, uh, more females working in uh, trade and technology, in engineering, in some of those faster-growing sectors um, where there has been a disproportionate amount uh, of, of representation um, you know, from that? We've, we've seen huge amounts of, of money being poured into uh, policing and security um, uh, through the, the pandemic and, and for a variety of reasons, that is going to benefit more uh, men than women because of the nature of that industry. How do we look to, to include more women and how do we ma- ma- um, measure and manage this over the long term? Uh, because I think that's going to be uh, critical. Aleem Kanji, political strategist affiliated with SaveSmallBusiness.ca, along with one of the collaborators on the report, Dr. Wendy Sukie, founder of Ryerson University's Diversity Institute. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We learned this past Tuesday that Toronto's new photo radar program nabbed more than 22,000 speeders in the first month of operation. It was announced by Mayor John Tory that between July 6th and August 5th, the city's new 50 automated speed enforcement cameras caught about 700 speeders a day. Joining me on Wednesday to talk about this disturbing trend, Dylan Reed, co-founder of Walk Toronto, and Officer Giancarlo Morelli of Toronto Police Traffic Safety. I heard those numbers yesterday. I was actually pretty shocked myself when I was like, wow, how many tickets? So it's, uh, they are scattered throughout the, throughout the city and the, um, throughout the wards, and they're, they're always going to be placed in the community safety zones, so usually school zones or where there are community centers where there's going to be young, young, uh, I say young children or even uh, the vulnerable uh, senior citizens as well. Sure. But there are signs, right? I mean, there are signs that indicate that, are, that a red light camera is coming up or a speed enforcement camera is coming up. That's correct. Yeah, we're not we're not hiding these things. <laughs> They're gray little boxes, and prior to the box, there are signs, black and white, saying municipal uh, speed and cameras in use. So everyone has been warned, even with the red light cameras. By law, we have to, or the city has to mention, hey, this intersection is going to be controlled by a red light camera. So there's no there's no surprise. There's no hiding it. 
It's not like it's like hiding in the bushes and you can't see it. It's in plain view. Well, Officer Morelli, it makes you wonder how much worse the speeding would be if the cameras weren't there. And you know why? And this is and this is an ongoing issue that we're having. And, you know, I'm glad that these are, you know, there's only, unfortunately, there's only 50. I wish there was a lot more that can help us. And, you know, there's about, what, almost a 1,000 schools in the city of Toronto. It'd be nice to have at least half of them covered. And just be astonishing to see how many tickets are actually written in these community safety zones. Tell us about some of the offenses. How quickly are some of these speeders going? Well, um, based on the uh, on the release yesterday, they actually had someone traveling almost 50 over the posted limit. They had one uh, one vehicle traveling at 89 kilometers an hour in a 40 kilometer hour zone. So that's 50. So that's that stunt driving. If you were caught by the non officer, mm-hmm. with obviously 50 over, we're taking your car, you're taking your license for seven days, and then you can go to the judge and explain why you were you were, you were doing those kind of speeds, and disturbingly in a community safety zone. And there are repeat offenders, I understand. <laughs> they were, uh, yeah, these, these numbers that came out yesterday were astonishing with, uh, with one vehicle, one vehicle getting 12 tickets. So what we need to understand as well is that these, these cameras can only take a picture of the license plate and the vehicle. It will not get the driver. So the registered owner will have a little surprise in the mailbox saying, hey, your vehicle was observed doing this speed at this time at this location, and here's, the, here's your fine, and, you know, you have, you have a, a certain time amount of, period of time to pay these tickets. Dylan Reed, co-founder of Walk Toronto. Are you surprised by these numbers uh, and how it affects people who are out there walking, just sharing the road, sharing the sidewalks? Yeah, so um, we're not surprised. This confirms why we've been pushing for automated speed enforcement for many years now, um, because we know people are speeding. And uh, it's really, really important that um, people become aware of of how much there is and that we start controlling it a little bit. Um, I mean, the reason, what it means for pedestrians is, um, you know, the chances of a pedestrian getting killed by a car uh, double between 40 kilometers an hour and 50 kilometers an hour. So uh, I think most of these are in 40 kilometer hour zones if people are obeying those speed limits. Um, if there's a collision, you know, the chances of death are relatively low. Um, but if people are speeding even 10 kilometers an hour faster, that the chance of death doubles and uh, becomes more than half. Um, and the chance of serious injury increases even more than that. What else could be done? We have the Vision Zero program happening. Now we have these 50 speed enforcement cameras, a lot more signage. What else can we be doing in the city to protect pedestrians? Well, I think these, these cameras are showing places where we could change the road to discourage speeding. I mean, um, <clears throat> there's been studies of speed cameras in other parts where, you know, people do follow the speed limits, often because the road is narrower or there's things that are, you know, encouraging them to drive at the speed limit. So I think basically these uh, cameras are giving us ideas of where it is that we need to change the road. Like maybe we put a, a safety bump out in front of schools and things like that, things that will slow drivers down and remind them that that's what the speed limit is. So the next step is to, you know, actually get some actual changes in the roadways to to actually keep drivers um, at the speed limit. That was Dylan Reed, co-founder of Walk Toronto, and Officer Giancarlo Morelli of Toronto Police Traffic Safety. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. 
Jan in Guelph phoned during our segment on speed enforcement cameras. The speeders, uh, whatever speed they're doing over the limit, well, let's give them 10 kilometers because it's easy to do that. But say anything over that, they should have the car taken away for more than seven days, a month at the very least. And, pardon me, I'm angry, (laughs) and have a sticker put on the car. Mm. Some sort of red sticker that people know that that car has been had for speeding. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Sherry in Toronto, who has worked in nursing homes before and during the pandemic. I am a certified PSW for about eight and a half years now, and the things that I have seen um, in nursing homes is just unbelievable. The things that I've reported... It, 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 it's very upsetting what I have seen, um, the lack of care, the neglect, the overworked PSWs, um, the lack of supplies. It's about time that our government is finally opening their eyes and realizing the reality of this situation. You don't see any difference now that we're six months into this pandemic. You don't see any difference in improved care, especially in light of uh, the horrific situation with the deaths back in the spring. I don't see any great um, improvement. No, I really don't. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightbackatzoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail, 416-367-9636, 367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.